This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Recurring Villains. Buckminster Fuller. Creepy Critters for Yellow King. And Operation Gladio. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And the thump of that particular miniature was... Pretty doom-laden. I think it made the Mountain Dew shiver in our glasses. Was it a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Was it Darth Vader? Was it the nefarious Dr. Quartz? Who could it have been but a recurring villain? Because beloved Patreon backer Walter Manbeck asks us, how do you keep a recurring villain threatening after the heroes team up to defeat him, one assumes the first time, and one assumes also defeat him in a non-terminal fashion. Robin, what have you got for villains? What do you mean non-terminal? We can easily bring a dead villain back from... We don't have to even do a segment on that. Any any listener who has seen any comic books, movies, or even soap operas knows how to bring the villain back from the dead. I think we can leave that off the agenda unless, you know, a beloved Patreon backer says, could you list all the ways to bring recurring villains back from the dead? And then we could do that, but that's not Walter's question. I think what we're going to do here is like, you've already beaten him once. How do you make him scary the second time? And uh, the most obvious way that this is typically done in the source material is the villain gets a power up. He's yep. uh, madder than ever, back for revenge. And uh, his titanium armor is now vibranium armor. Yeah, in um, my own Supers game, 
the player characters have j- uh, just beaten down Mecha Stalin and they've drained the radiation from his cold star heart, leaving him doubtless inert forever. But of course, you and I both know that Mecha Stalin can only come back more terrifying than before. And yes, his cold star heart will become a fiery star heart. He, he can never fail. He can only be failed. Exactly. And so that is, you know, the, the classic power up is, is terrific. I find, in fact, that the fact that he comes back from the dead can also threaten or the fact that uh, it is a power move it is a power move it's very strong especially in a in in a genre where you did not expect that to happen from that specific villain or other ways just the re-entry of the villain if you've done your job with making him terrifying and making the players sweat to defeat him the first time having him show up again at the very least gets a reaction Uh, the reaction may be not this guy again but at the very least it's something and in, uh, I mentioned uh, the nefarious Dr. Quartz, who of course was the supervillain that opposed detective Nick Carter and the pulps. In my, uh, long form pulp immortals heroic game, uh, the players went to a great deal of trouble to defeat Dr. Quartz and, and kill him only to realize that they had done so in a parallel dimension and that our earth's Dr. Quartz was still alive. And that was, you know, right there that, that had them shook because they'd, They'd gone to great and terrible efforts to defeat him the first time, and they were not sure they wanted to do that again. And of course, yes. he'd also gotten a power up because it's not an either or. So I, I feel they like they hadn't killed Dr. Quartz, they'd killed Dr. Schwartz. No, they killed Dr. Quartz, but it was Dr. Quartz from a different timeline. So parallel Earth Dr. Quartz was still alive, or original Earth Dr. Quartz was still alive. So there was a there was a a, a moment there, and I feel like if you've done your job with making your villain initially terrifying, dangerous, and hard to kill, even without a power-up, him coming back is bad news. You know, the the Dracula films uh, from Hammer famously did that over and over and over again. Dracula got no more powerful. Uh, you could argue he got less powerful as the Hammer cycle went on, but he comes back and he's a, a new and terrifying threat to everybody. And, and the core to that is just make your villain really good so that he's always threatening, whether he's back a first time or a fifth time. I, I think in a role-playing game context, a fifth time is pushing it a little bit, but certainly uh, I, I think, you know, some of it is uh, to, you know, to, to sandbag the original question and say, make him super threatening the first time and he'll stay threatening when he recurs. And uh, specifically a kind of power up that you can use is whatever the thing is that they used to uh, defeat the villain the first time, the power up is he's got immunity to that now. So you finally finished him off with a fireball. Oh, he's fireproof this time. Or, you know, you all ganged up on him while he's, uh, uh, you've discovered that he's got the, uh, the six orbs of seeing that give him not just uh, cancel your flanking bonus, but give him a bonus if you gang up on him or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the players have used to uh, get uh, one up on him. Another thing to do is to increase his power in the world. So, you know, the evil sorcerer comes back, but now uh, he's got the king on his side. So not only do you have to figure out how to get the sorcerer, but there are political ramifications. And again, that limits the possible ways that you can uh, come at the bad guy. So there's another thing he can do is the classic trope where he strips away from you everything you have that makes you uh, uh, you. So, uh, you know, in the superhero context, uh, he takes away your superpowers or, you know, in uh, even worse, even more upsetting in F20, he takes away your magic items or, you know, whatever it is that he strikes at you the way that you struck at him. And so you've 
uh, last time you were uh, going at the villain. Now the villain's going at you. That's way scary for any role-playing player. Or, you know, he uh, suddenly uh, he's, he's planted a tracker on you that you can't remove. So he knows what you're doing. He knows he uh, knows what you're planning. Yeah, I think that if you find something that you'd ideally pre uh, foreshadowed or mentioned that he might do in the initial encounter, you know, look through the villain's list of possible responses, find the ones that he didn't use against you, your players the first time, and then have him lean on those. If he's got, you know, um, an army of minions, and that's mostly what you had to, you know, go through to beat up this seeming mathematics professor. Well, now come back to find out that he's also uh, got the power of reptile hypnosis and he can, you know, do other stuff. And you've you hit it at that because the minions all seem pretty mind blanked. But when he comes back now, it's like, ah, minions are they're too much trouble. I'm just going to, you know, directly hypnotize people to do what I want and, and rise to power that way. So anything that you've, you know, laid out as, you know, his power B, try and switch that around, make that his power A that he is. Uh, leaning on and that way you don't even need to say oh he got a power up it's just oh he's you know taking his other arm out from around behind his back because now he realizes he's in a real fight and that's you know you don't want that you don't want to you don't want suddenly dracula or darth vader or mr or dr quartz to say oh you're an actual threat well that means I should take this seriously. You you would really rather fight their minions and move. <laughs> yes, I've been fighting you left-handed all along, but guess what? I'm right-handed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another thing that you can do is have the uh, recurrence come out of left field, right? You think that you're tracking down uh, some av- other adversary, and you uh, get down in the lair, and you've planned to deal you know, with the, the necromancer of Garthos, and you've got this special amulet that uh, protects you from necromancy, and you finally bust down into the final room and he rips off his mask and nope, it's not that at all. It's the evil light angel that you've been fighting all along. It's like, whoa, oh no. And so it can be both rewarding to foreshadow the return of the recurring villain again and again and have them finally come up, especially as you point out, if you made him really scary the first time or drop him in from nowhere or they finish one adventure, they go back to their lair and boom, they're uh, headquarters has been blown up and waiting for them is their adversary uh, and cut to uh, see you next week. Come come on back. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's about if you use all of the advantages that a that the players typically have for your uh, key villain, uh, that villain becomes much scarier. Just, you know, play him smarter. And uh, as a GM, use all of the resources that you're available. So, you know, if wait until they're trapped in a stormy sea and worried about the boat sinking. And then all of a sudden the bad guy shows up or the bad guy who they've expected to confront, you know, in the castle at the end of the boat, right? Oh, nope, there he is right here. And so that's both expectation, but expectation delivered in another way, delivered through surprise uh, when, you know, they're busy not sinking the boat. And of course, you know, the, the villain has figured out a way not to have to worry about drowning himself. What do you think, and we've talked about this in other contexts, in the context of writing good, what do you think about, and I've seen this done, the heroes are chasing some threat and they uh, are very mad at that threat. They want it out of their hair. Let's say it's the, you know, Lord of the Werewolves or something, and they've got him penned up in his palace and they show up and the Lord of the Werewolves head is on the desk and standing behind the desk is our old friend, the the necromancer. And he says, I didn't want anyone to rudely interrupt us 
when we have our second meeting. So, you know, oh, he's so badass. Well, well that's just the ripping off the, the mask scene, except he's got the actual head on hand to right. do it with. Yeah. And he's he's killed, you know, the seemingly bad guy or the seemingly threatening villain that you were going after. And it's like, oh, he did that without even breaking a sweat. He's obviously very scary. And we've talked about that being kind of a, a cheap narrative trick. But one of the things that I always say is that cheap narrative tricks work really well in game contexts because you're inside them, not outside them watching them happen. Do you see any value in some of the more melodramatic uh, villain establishing uh, beats here? Absolutely. That's what people are signing up for. And mm -hmm. as you say, to, to have those from the inside and it's not a cliche if you're doing it uh, is basically the mm -hmm. rule in role playing and the, the, the idea is that we have all of these things at our disposal to use. And so, uh, yeah, look at, look at your favorite second appearance of a recurring uh, villain. Another thing I guess we should quickly note is that one thing that particularly you will see in television a lot is the, the heel, the adversary does a halo turn, a face turn and mm. becomes, if not good, cooperative for a while. And in traditional narrative, uh, particularly in television, that allows you to keep a series regular doing things without that character always yep. being the villain. The, I, the hated spike turn. Right. <laughs> and that certainly makes the players, it turns out, hate that villain all the more when they mm -hmm. get closer to him. Uh, of course, he's insulting and needling them the whole time and threatening what he's going to do to them later. And, and so that, I think, is useful to sort of spice up a recurring villain emotionally because uh, what you have done is, you know, once they defeated him, they feel a sense of, you know, power and they're, they're up on top of him. And now uh, they have to work with him for a while. And of course he's a typical jerk villain the whole time. That's the, uh, the speaking of, you know, that's the, the vibes, that's yeah. the trope. And so that just gives them, you know, so many more emotional downbeats to want to work off when they finally do get to uh, uh, fight him again. And they may, you know, the other thing to know is that of course, once you establish that a villain could possibly recur, at least one person in the group is going to, no, 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 I'm going to do everything I can to kill, 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 kill him dead. And of course, you can use that to your advantage by creating a red herring method of uh, life saving, right? That the uh, you can establish, well, he does have this life model decoy. It looks a lot like him. It looks like he's building a doppelganger. And then the players can all go, well, okay, now that we've killed him, make sure we go kill his robot. And of course, you know, that's your classic decoy robot. You, you get one free. You get a free yep. decoy robot with every purchase of an actual other robot some other way. Or it's a complete other distraction from the thing that they're going to do to make sure that they're not dead, 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 but merely comic book dead. Yeah. And part of it is also know your players a little bit and know how they're likely to kill the villain if you uh, if you give them the option. And then make sure the villain has also thought that up. And that's part of playing the villain smarter, as you were saying previously. You know, let him use a little bit of out of character knowledge and say, okay, I know that Debbie is going to burn the villain's body the instant that they kill him because she's, first of all, uh, her character is a little bit of a pyro. And also she's very thorough. She's very intense about this stuff. So the villain needs to come up with a a methodology, maybe he turns into smoke instead of, you know, being burned to ash, or maybe he has some other sort of, you know, a deal with the King of the Salamanders. I believe his plan is called Operation Phoenix. <laughs> right. You you just have lots of uh, uh, stuff with that letterhead on it. You know, oh, what's this Operation Phoenix? Probably nothing. Just throw that on the pyre. And then, uh, <laughs> well, looks like we've done God's work today by burning that villain to death. Nothing he planned can ever come back to bite us. And I guess, Robin, if we've burned all the evidence of Operation Phoenix... 
can we sneak out of the hut and hope not to attract the attention of the felonious Dr. Quartz? I I think exactly so. I'm not even sure what we did to offend Dr. Quartz. Well, frankly, having your own skin offends Dr. Quartz. He's not a good guy. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The beauty of the domes and the integrity of all of the office furniture and uh, also the steps uh, tell us that we're once more in that most elevated of huts, uh, elevated because we had to walk up a bunch of steps to get to it, the architecture hut. And this time around, at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Robert Wolf, uh, Ken, we, meaning mostly you, are going to tell us about <laughs> Buckminster Fuller. He's a, uh, I think, of the various 20th century architects, he's the one who contributed another chunk of uh, what the future looks like or looked like uh, back in the day in science fiction art. A lot of geodesic domes to look at uh, because as well as being an architect, he was a futurist and even a game designer. But the game design comes a a little later in his big polymathic career. Uh, So get us started. Yeah, um, he's born in 1895, grows up, uh, not a lot of money, poor. He works hard labor to get into college, goes to a technical college. Then he gets into Harvard on the merits and gets expelled from Harvard in 1913. And nothing loath, you know. Puts himself, you know, back to the grindstone, goes back to Harvard and gets expelled again. So already we love him because he's expelled from Harvard twice, the second time in 1915. So what is he expelled for? (laughs) Bad attitude, mostly. He doesn't get along with the professors or the other students or anybody. He's, He's not clubbable. He, you know, neglects work that he doesn't think is important. He's just 
March into his own drummer, even back then. He marries a woman named Anne Hewlett in 1917 and then serves in the U.S. Navy in World War I, where one assumes a little of the uh, smart off just to be a smart mouth is knocked out of him because he does, in fact, rise to command a ship and then takes those leadership skills and goes to Chicago to run a meatpacking plant. And while he is in Chicago, he notices that his house is terrible. It's damp. It's awful. The cold wind blows through the cracks and he starts designing interlocking fiberboard forms that you would pour concrete into to make a weatherproof house. And the interlocking fiberboard form company sort of ticks along. One assumes that Fuller overdesigns it because it's not even get its first prototype house built until 1926. And the company fails pretty soon thereafter. He is at this point, desperate, his first child has died. His wife has uh, had their second child. He's in Chicago in the winter, which, quite frankly, I get. And he thinks about throwing himself into Lake Michigan. And rather than do that, what happens is he has a uh, mystical experience, an epiphany. A white light picks him up, carries him up off the ground and says, uh, from now on, you need never await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. Ken, 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 was this you? Was this you in the time machine with a light? It, it, it wasn't not me. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I might have done in the future, Robin. That's not how time travel works. That's right. You Just because you haven't done it yet doesn't mean that you're not going to do it. Like, for example, at the end of our recording. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to have gotten the idea from talking to you about it right now. Right. So anyway, the white light, the mysterious white light, the mysterious, well-spoken white light with a voice like an angel gives him a, a pep talk, a talking to, and he says to embark on what he calls his guinea pig bee experiment to find out if one individual with no money or influence can change the world and benefit humanity. And to begin with, that's uh, the perfect he, way. <laughs> Uh, the most humble way to describe your own m megalomaniacal attitude is to describe yourself as guinea pig bee who will change the guinea pig who will change all of history. Yep. It's, it's pretty great, actually. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of megalomaniacs, obviously you're Alexander the greats, but I, I like this one better. Fewer people wind up dead at the end of it. Certainly. Um, the downside is he does leave Chicago because he feels maybe that was part of his problem. Goes to New York, starts hanging around with design people and artists uses that, uh, remnants of his Harvard education and some of his native design skills, which are pretty impressive, to start becoming an industrial designer for various firms. He works for a radiator making company. He does a lot of consulting for a bunch of companies. He does interior design and he starts building out his ideas for prefab housing because uh, his fiberboard form company did not knock that out of his head and uh, maybe prefab cars that could be, you know, both the driving part of a car and maybe the gondola of an airship who can say could be a boat and he calls everything that he makes dimaxian that is actually a term invented by the ad company that was working with one of the companies he was working with and they said we're gonna call it dimaxian because it's dynamic and maximal and he said you know what i'm a guy who makes up words i love that one so he then uh gets the rights to the word dimaxian and starts using it to refer to the Dymaxian house, which is a prefab house, and the Dymaxian car, as I've mentioned. All of these things tend to be super teardrop streamlined. 
Uh, the notion is that the horrible Chicago wind will bounce off them instead of going through them, which I think is a good call. And the uh, World War II comes along, and guess who wants a bunch of prefab structures that can't be blown over by the wind? That's right, the U.S. military. So they buy a bunch of Dymaxion dome units, and I think that is sort of the thing that gets him his big leg up in terms of connections with everybody and also finally lets him, you know, pay his rent on the regular as he gets a giant contract from the Navy and a giant contract from the Marines to provide Dymaxion dome units. And, you know, I assume a license fee. So they're building all of these low slung sort of fish shaped. They're not Quonset huts because they don't have the flat ends, but they're basically Quonset huts. And then they put them all over uh, mostly North America. They don't usually deploy them overseas, but you know, they put them in weather stations up in Canada and, and wherever else. So that is sort of the thing that, you know, uh, starts him on the path of saying, oh, this actually can happen at scale. And it's in the 40s that he begins working on the geodesic dome, which had been invented by a German guy in 1925, you know, but apparently Fuller didn't know about it. He never mentions the German guy. There's no evidence that he read any of the uh, uh, good, good old Hubert geodesic, I think was his name. Johnny geodesic. That's what they called him. But anyway, Fuller gets the American patent for it and develops the geodesic dome. And the first one goes up in 45, and that one's sort of an iffy geodesic dome, and he improves it on it, improves on it, and by 1949, he's basically got the geodesic dome perfected. And it's at this time that he, again, he's getting this reputation. He used to be the science and design editor for Fortune magazine, or Forbes magazine, I forget which one, but it was one of those, uh, so rich people were reading him which is always helpful. If, if only I could have figured that out. Anyway, he gets a bunch of uh, speaking gigs. He gets to go back to Harvard and rub it in their face, which is great. And then he gets a, a standing teaching gig at a place called Black Mountain College in North Carolina, where he meets a lot of other sort of rogue wandering geniuses. And they begin to, you know, blow each other up talking about, you know, uh, futurism. And this is where what has been a design goal and the relatively quotidian design goal of maybe houses shouldn't be cold and leaky becomes how can the world be improved? And he begins to think and lecture on that. He starts using his geodesic dome deliberately as a futuristic symbol. And then over the course of the next decade or so, he gets such a reputation that when Southern Illinois University is founded in Carbondale, Illinois, they offer him basically a resident genius job. Uh, he only has to be on campus two months out of the year, but he can do whatever he wants. And, you know, even in 1959, that was a great deal. And so he seized on that with both hands and became the resident genius. And Southern Illinois became sort of the base for his operations. With that stability, he's then able to increase his audiences, increase the sorts of jobs that he takes on. He begins to do big concept structures like a geodesic dome over Manhattan, uh, designed for a tetrahedral floating city called Triton City that fascinates LBJ, but uh, fascinates him enough to get the Navy to pay for the design of it, but not enough to get it built, obviously. And then he starts doing institutional architecture. So, for example, he designed the U.S. Pavilion at Expo 67, which was the World's Fair in Montreal, and he designs three airports in India, not little ones either, uh, Mumbai, New Delhi, and Madras. And uh, that's, you know, that's something. And that he does that in 1973. So by this time, he's become a, you know, much-traveled, peripatetic uh, genius. And you'd bring him out and he talks about the future and he talks about seeing the white light in Chicago and how great it sounded and 
wouldn't you like to meet that guy and buy him a drink? Maybe he doesn't mention that so much, but he also begins, you know, funding research for something that he calls the world game. Uh, he designs this in 1961, although he claims he's been playing it since 1927. And the goal of the world game is basically cooperative resource maximization, such that everyone plays one of the major industrial powers, and you try and use the energy produced by your society to improve the lot of your own people and then the lot of everyone in the world. And so it's an exercise in cooperating with the contents of the earth to build out a, a better, you know, more equitable and richer future for everybody. So it, it fits right into the spirit of the sixties. Certainly so not is, the first cooperative game, a big early first one. Oh, absolutely. And one that has huge cachet because he's the, the game is played on a 70 foot version of his Dimaxian globe, which by the way is very cool. It's basically an icosahedron, a, a 20 sided die or dodecahedron, whichever it is. And each face of the die can link together almost any other kind of way with the rest of the die so that you can lay out the world map, which because it's a polar projection basically doesn't have distortion of size and uh, you can lay it out with anything at the center. So he would, you know, lay out the giant world map and he would put, you know, the Middle East in the center, if that's who he's talking about, or he'd put North America at the center if he's talking to American generals, or he'd put Russia at the center if he's overseas or wherever, right? So he could build out this, this uh, globe map and uh, then play it with the data that he's had think tanks and everyone else gather for him. So it's, it's not the sort of thing that is commercially available in 1961. And eventually, it, I think you can buy it now. Uh, for, you know, play on your computer. But back in the day, it was the sort of big game that you played with a bunch of uh, rich people in attendance who, or, or powerful people as, as a method of, of thought influencing and, uh, and changing minds. Um, and it's sort of like the, you know, the national security games that uh, people play at either the war college or they play at very big uh, conferences, that sort of operation. Right. Right. So there's something very hopeful and forward looking about uh, Fuller and, uh, he, uh, I think, is kind of the the opposite of Lovecraftian horror in in his outlook. It's hard to imagine, uh, even though he's uh, sort of at the at the height of his flourishing in the '60s. It's kind of hard to fit him into Fall of Delta Green. He's very Euclidean, <laughs> shall we say? So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, perhaps his gaming ac application best suited for a period supers game, a Silver Age supers game, where the supervillains are threatening to sink Triton City or. Uh, trying to steal a geodesic dome is is that our our best use for uh, Fuller that is most in keeping with his philosophy. I, I feel like if you're putting actual Buckminster Fuller into the game, you can present it as you know you're in a Silver Age supers uh, world. So yeah, Triton City gets built or or whatever. You could have the Fuller world be a sort of a utopia that you're aiming for that you have in a vision i think that's a strong one and then you know you meet the guy who's building the things in your utopia and you're like oh is he connected did uh, what happened and he says oh a white light spoke to me in chicago in 1927 and the player characters can be oh, a white light showed us a vision of the future too we've got to protect you from badness and you know it could be a sort of a, a high-end 60s you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Avengers, TV show type game where, you know, there's uh, various forces of reaction and evil that are trying to prevent this utopia from happening. Uh, and they might be, you know, the bad old coal company or the bad old communists or whoever it is. But you're trying to, you know, keep Buckminster Fuller's vision, you know, flowing out. And the more bad guys you beat, the better 
he is able to transform the world into a utopia. And I feel like that can be in, sort in of a, a fun universe game. I would be tempted to make the white light Jorel, mm-hmm. who is um, beaming in and, uh, you know, tells him, you know, not to give up because he's looking for Buckminster Fuller to build Krypton on Earth. Right. So that his son will be ready to live in a, a positive environment with good Kryptonian values. And uh, you could think of that as, you know, keep it utopian or, or uh, you know, you Luther Corp could take over or, or what have you. But I think that would be a, mm-hmm. a fun parallel because definitely the design of Krypton in various uh, forms, especially the 70s movie, uh, very much... It's not a direct steal from Fuller, but in its whiteness and its uh, ge- geometric nature, I think kind of captures his vibe. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there's other stuff you can do with, with him. You could have him in a Fall of Delta Green game. He is a mathematical, you know, design genius. He has ultra-terrestrial experiences. You could say that he saw Yithian architecture, and this is what he's building, and then you, the player characters, have to sort of think, well, we can't be killing Buckminster Fuller, that's uncool, but we can't let him build this giant, you know, multi-dome that he wants to build, because we feel like that could go south. And so it becomes a situation where the unnatural problem is one that you can't just shoot your way out of, you have to work a little more subtly inside, because he's not bad, he's good. He's just, you know, seen this vision of something that humanity can't actually build and he's trying to build it. And it's, uh, it's sort of like, you know, the absolute nicest imaginable Faust story. I feel like you could get a little bit of vibe from that, especially if you have established, you know, that he is definitely not a cultist, definitely on the side of the angels. He just got brushed by the Ithians in 1927 and that's all that's happened to him. And that he's just so smart that he's one of the few people who could, you know, build uh, freestanding concrete dome architecture with no supports, which is something that he did, in fact, basically invent in the 60s. So it might be that he's so smart, they can't take him over. So they had to talk to him uh, with their uh, white light, which they consider inefficient. Mm-hmm. Um, or that, you know, the the action of them trying to take him over is what boosted his intellect to such a degree that then they can't do it. They just bobbled the job, right? You know, they, they tried to fish for him and he got off the line and now he can't be caught again for some Yithian double talk reason. Right. And that can give you an, another plot line, which is nothing to do with his architecture, but you're trying to figure out the secret of, uh, you know, a Yithian ward. So, you know, you got to get close to him and, you know, get us, you know, it's like, Oh, your whole assignment is uh, as Delta green is just to, Get a little blood sample from Buckminster Fuller, but don't let him know why, because we want to analyze and see if there's a Yithian antigen, because uh, we could really use it, because our agents keep getting taken over, and that's that's a drag. And then, of course, you know, you would go from that quotidian beginning to something bigger. Uh, well, speaking of things that are bigger, this podcast is bigger than two segments. It has three, nay, even four. So I think it's about time we got to number three, at least. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast recurring by chipping in alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Derek Heimforth, John Rogers, Ross Ireland, Stephen Hammond, and Brian Thomas. The rattling of chains, the spooky faces in the window, the sound of wolves howling on the moor, the question about geometry and what's that about, lead us into the horror hut. And in the horror hut, we're going to talk totemic animals, because our games have animal attributes, just like the gods did. Uh, Knights Black Agents, famously, has your bats, your rats, your wolves. Trail of Cthulhu has got your octopuses and cuttlefishes, as well as rats and hounds of Tindalos. So what creepity animals follow in the train of the Yellow King? And uh, Robin, what have, what, what have you thought? I mean, you mentioned previously horrible foxes yipping in the, in the night. Are, are foxes yes. officially a Yellow King animal now? Well, I don't know how officially they are. And so that is something that emerged during play during my own game where I just mentioned at one point that there were foxes yipping outside of a particular environment that the player characters were in. Another place mentioned, have you ever heard a fox? And uh, called up the uh, cry of a fox on YouTube. And guess what? Uh, they can be quite disturbing. And so that became a brilliant sort of leitmotif for the whole campaign. And whenever I wanted to freak people out, I would just play screaming foxes again. And immediately that would terrify them. But uh, although that is cool. I don't know if I can explain what is specifically Yellow Kingy about it, except that uh, there is also another canine theme running through the published game that isn't just from my own uh, run with my own players. So uh, the war scenario in the book is uh, based around uh, the Beast of Gevedon, which we've talked about right, again yep. uh, on a previous edition of the podcast, a monstrous wolf that they encounter in the wars. And then there's a call back to that in the aftermath scenario where they're uh, dealing with riot dogs, which are genetically altered dogs uh, created by the now overthrown old evil regime, but they're, they're still running around uh, being monster dogs. And so there is something of a dog element or canine element happening there. And I think part of that is apart from the wolf and the vampire, uh, I think dogs are kind of under underused a bit in horror. They're still, you know, we can think of, examples in, you know, from Dario Argento or they're specifically dog-oriented horror movies. But given the fact that those of us who live in, you know, relatively settled parts of the world, if you're going to be killed by an animal and you don't live in the equatorial regions where the animal that will kill you is a mosquito, chances are you're going to be killed by a dog. Lots of us are scared of dogs. I was certainly scared of dogs as a kid. And the justification for that, I, I think, is that uh, the idea of the Yellow King is it's sort of 
literary horror has sort of a quotidian aspect. Often the things that are coming to get you are parts of normal life, especially in the this is normal now section. So uh, making dogs scary, I think, is an, an interesting and rich area. Although unlike your snake, your bat, your rat, we do not universally think of dogs as scary. We think of uh, them as uh, adorable and, and nice and sweet. People love dogs. So you have to sort of uh, mostly, I think, upgrade away from the dog, either make them a mutant, as in with the riot dogs, or mm-hmm. your, your more predatory, scary canines, the ones who kind of want to eat your pet dogs. And that would be your, you know, your monster wolves, your hideous uh, screaming foxes, and uh, the rest mm-hmm. of the wild canine kingdom. One animal that I think that I would tend to associate with the king in yellow is again not really from the source material but it is from the author because robert w chambers famously collected butterflies he was a big lepidopterist he mentions them a great deal in the romantic novels uh you know when he's doing sort of a a pastoral scene there will be a butterfly floating around there is a butterfly in one of the stories in street of our lady of the fields in the collection though it's not in the yellow mythos stories but he also does a murder mystery about a butterfly called the Purple Emperor in one of his later collections of, of short stories in Mystery of Choice. So I feel like you could get butterflies in here. And also Chambers put a butterfly on the cover of his book when he designed the cover of, I think it was the third printing. He put a big butterfly on it, a big yellow butterfly. So the strong association of butterflies with both the notion of butterflies as uh, psychopomps, that they fly back and forth between the lands of the living and the dead, um, and then the notion of uh, Chambers as butterfly. And again, the fact that you don't think of butterflies as creepy, but anything that you emphasize in a horror game becomes creepy. I got a very good reaction in a Call of Cthulhu game from the smell of juniper, which the player characters became very messed up by whenever they smelled juniper. And there's nothing really bad about Juniper, but there we are. Right. And if you expand that to moths, they're just the creepy version of butterflies. They're just like butterflies, but just everything about them is wrong and horrible. They are actively nasty looking a lot of the time. There's some great big ones and uh, their wing dust is uh, much more uh, prevalent. So you've got that uh, moth pollen going on. And you could also have the idea that, uh, of course, the moths and butterflies and other insects of Carcosa, of course, are going to be so much worse than ours. So you can graft on the qualities of other horrible insects. So you could have uh, uh, blood drinking uh, butterflies. There are already butterflies who like do feed on carrion or uh, will, you know, drink the tears of tortoises and stuff. That's, that's kind of icky. There's also a little bit of a parallel in that the dragonfly is the model for the gyrocopter in the wars. And so uh, you can also throw dragonflies, uh, literal dragonflies into the other three uh, sequences uh, so that they can uh, then be echoed in uh, the uh, in the wars aircraft and you can you know uh, create additional ones as well so you can have moth airplanes and butterfly airplanes and uh, uh, build that out more and, and, and pull on that theme more and I think it would also be interesting to have like reverse butterflies they begin as butterflies but that's the first stage of their life cycle because they're from Carcosa and what they're really going to turn into eventually, after they feast on you, is a horrible worm with a Carcosan pallid mask face that will then tell you horrible secrets of the uh, other world. Like the gravekeeper in Yellow Sign, the story, he's a big sluggy worm guy. So maybe he began as a as a 
Casilda Consecraria moth, uh, which is a real moth with yellow wings. So there you go. Sadly, it was a real moth named Casilda in 1952, but you can't let these bickering differences get in your way in uh, different reality streams. It's a reality shift. They've been named Casilda back in 1895 after the play. A lepidopterist who became obsessed and reclassified a bunch of moths because these were the moths that had flown in from the doors of Carcosa. I, I think that's got some strong possibilities to it myself. Another question you can ask yourself is what animals do you associate with masks? So raccoons, of course, fit, but they're adorable. And so uh, I have them in the game as, yes, you run into raccoons, but they are wearing weird ceramic masks on their faces for some reason. And you sight them at night and they uh, you glimpse them out of the corner of your eyes and then they scurry away. And that there's a whole idea that all sorts of ordinary animals are now suddenly wearing little masks, like the rats in the sewers are wearing little porcelain masks. And, and that just can't possibly be uh, good news in any uh, way, shape or form. And of course, owls, certain types of owls, like your barn owl, look like they have masks. And uh, as we pointed out in, in previous episodes of the podcast, they're a, yep. a scary and underused creepy animal and uh, are already in the lore as sort of the mask of other experiences uh, that you sight an owl and you just, oh, I ran into an owl. Well, it's a symbol for your having been kidnapped by aliens or falling in with uh, ultra-terrestrials, or in this case, uh, that you uh, stepped into Carcosa for a little while and that they're the the guardians on the pathway to uh, Carcosa. And I feel like there's also animals that have faces on them to distract, you know, other animals. So you've got the big uh, fake eyes on the back of some bees, uh, and then tied in with that, you've got the, the famous crabs in the lake of, in Japan that have evolved to look like samurai helmets so that they are, are thrown back in the lake by superstitious, uh, crab fishermen. And I think you could do a lot with an animal that just has a seemingly naturally evolved pattern of mask on it. That's either on the carapace of a crab or on a beetle. I can certainly imagine like a, a big scarab or something with a, a pallid mask like carapace on it. I, I feel like you can, you know, combine natural drift into this masked decadent look with just, oh, no, that's protective coloration. That's a sort of a, a mask, if you will. Uh, and then, you know, all manner of fun can emerge from that, right? Right. Well, I think I hear the clacking of uh, pallid crabs uh, coming toward us. So I think it's time for us to flee the horror hut, which is the only way to leave the horror hut, and uh, see what lurks on the other side. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city 
and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness. Vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass. A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione. Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The retinal scan and the background check tell us that once more, we are entering the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, we're going to go into detail on something we've mentioned in passing a couple of times on the show, once in Ken's bookshelf. And I think we've kind of zoomed in on the Italian aspect on this a bit more, but we're going to zoom out this time around to talk about Operation Gladio, uh, which was basically the different organizations that the CIA left in place in Europe after World War II, just in case those uh, countries happened to fall either democratically or otherwise into the uh, hands of Stalin and uh, Russia. And Ken, uh, that's the basic intro, but you've got a lot more detail for us. Yeah, the uh, notion of a stay-behind network obviously you know, predates Gladio. It was being done in World War II. It's basically what the French resistance was supposed to be. The British organized a stay-behind network on their own soil because they were worried that Hitler would you know, do Operation Sea Lion and land. And then when they carried on the war from Canada or wherever, they'd need a network back behind. So the planning of a stay-behind network had been a regular feature of Allied planning during the war. The Americans, again, did not plan one in the Philippines. The notion that we planned anything in the Philippines is is to make you laugh. But again, we saw how effective that kind of network would be when we were working with the Philippine resistance against the Japanese. So it's a logical step that if the Soviets roll over uh, the disarmed and bombed flat Europe, that you need someone there to serve as the nucleus for an eventual partisan movement. And this was the notion behind Gladio. And the degree to which Gladio existed before about 1952 varies depending on how you define Gladio and how you define existed. But the planning, again, goes back at least to 47. We know that the CIA, or what will become the CIA, is working on stay-behind network uh, structures with the British at that point. By 1952, there are stay-behind networks, Gladio networks, in virtually every NATO country. And in addition to NATO countries, they're in some neutral countries, which is good fun, I suppose. So, for example, Italy is Gladio. In Belgium, it's called SDRA-8. In Denmark, it's called Absalon. In France, it's called Plan Bleu. Uh, which I, I love that everyone goes nuts with their own little uh, crazy names and it, it little national character in what you call your secret uh, right wing stay behind network in Germany. It is Technische Dienst Bund Deutsche Jugend or TDBDJ. <laughs> that is the best one that it's very long and has an acronym yep. in uh, Greece. It's called Operation Sheepskin, which is very cool. I know that uh, or rather no is again a very strong word, but. They have been credibly alleged to have existed in Netherlands and Norway, but the names don't seem to have been declassified very easily. In Portugal, 
the Stay Behind Network operated under cover of a publishing and media company called Agenter Press. Which That's I why love. they never delivered the books on time. <laughs> right. Uh, Turkey, uh, the program is called Contra Guerrilla. Uh, and then in, in neutral countries, it also exists. In Austria, uh, there's something called it's uh, the, the cover group is a, a sort of a hiking club called the Österreicher Wandersport und Geselligkeitsverein or OEWSGV. Uh, Sweden has one that is probably run from the same place as the Project IB, which is the secret network within their military and intelligence circles that says, well, we're officially neutral, but but we hate the Soviets. So um, so it's probably part of IB, but I don't know what it would have been called specifically in Sweden. And then in Switzerland, it's called Project 26, which is a great neutral Swiss name for something. And many of these things have not even been admitted to by the governments in question. Uh, only three of the countries have actually had investigations into their Gladio networks. Italy, famously, because Prime Minister Andreotti in 1990 either drunk or on the stand or possibly both said, oh yeah, Operation Gladio, we set that up a while ago. That was great, wasn't it? And then everyone said, was that connected in any way to the fact that all these right-wing terrorists kept getting military-grade weaponry? And he'd said, oh goodness, I don't know. And then they started investigating and it turned out, oh yes, it was. Similarly, a lot of powerful military weaponry kept disappearing in Belgium and the Netherlands, and that caused a bit of a stir. And then I believe that there was an investigation in Germany as well that sort of uncovered a TDBDJ. So there is some, I think, presupposition that there was indeed a Gladio network in all of the NATO countries. In Spain, there was not a Gladio network, as uh, the Spanish uh, military said. Franco was Gladio. We, we, <laughs> that was the regime was Gladio. If you're looking for creepy right wingers with military weaponry, that's us. <laughs> we were them. Uh, so we, apparently we needed to put one in Portugal, but not in Spain, which I guess, you know, Portugal was part of NATO and Spain wasn't until much later. Anyway, that's basically the way that it's set up. And you can sort of separate Gladio from the things that happened as a result of Gladio. Because Gladio itself is, it's, it's really just, you know, the, the network. These are the guys that we can trust to run the guerrilla resistance. They know where the arms caches are. They go out for training every so often. Seems pretty, you know, transparent and straightforward from the London and Washington side of things. Now, it, where it gets tricky is places like Italy, where you do in fact have communists threatening to come to power electorally and therefore there is a great deal of incentive by these guys who are picked, may I remind everyone, for fervent anti-communist views, who are sitting on piles of machine guns and say, well, maybe no one would mind if we just borrowed some of these grenades and made sure the communists don't take power in our city. And that, of course, leads, at the worst case, to the days of lead, or the years of lead, rather, in Italy, where you have legitimate or legitimate is maybe a strong word, but actual right-wing death squads running around uh, having firefights with the actual communist terrorists. So not a good situation to be in, and one that Italy eventually decided they wanted to blame on the CIA, which, fair enough. But in Germany, uh, the gaff got blown actually because one of the local Gladio heads was a woman, and her husband turned out to be a spy for East Germany. So the whole Gladio network got rolled up by the East Germans and only the quick thinking of the, of the woman, she figured it out and then warned the West German authorities. And so they sort of shut down Gladio before it could get completely flipped by East Germany. But in general, 
that's the downside. Is that, that the was whole quite point. the talk at the uh, breakfast table the next morning? Right. So what are you doing? So the um, an institutional problem with Gladio is that you're basically you have to leave these people in charge of these weapons and these caches and these secret radios and enough material to literally overthrow the country, and you can't keep talking to them about it because that breaks their cover. So you just have to cross fingers and hope none of them decide to, I don't know, overthrow the country with it. And the sheepskin program in Greece has been alleged to be part of the colonel's coup uh, in, I believe, 1974. Obviously, Turkey's military deep state has been alleged, uh, not even alleged, has outright said yes to be part of several coup d'etats in Turkey. So the degree to which Contra Guerrilla was part of that is part of the big unanswered question of the Turkish deep state. And then Sweden, Switzerland, the official neutrals, it just looks bad because they were officially neutral. And here they are having anti-communist resistance networks being funded in their own countries. And uh, their excuse usually is, oh, we, we have no idea the CIA was doing that. Uh, we are sh as shocked as you are. But of course, you know, no one really believes that nonsense. So it's uh, it's it's sort of an ongoing thing. Plan Blow may or may not have been connected to the OAS, the right-wing terrorists that uh, tried to kill de Gaulle and generally overthrow the French government after they got out of Algeria. There's sort of a, a slippery slope, I guess you want to say, between recruiting a bunch of fanatical anti-communists and giving them enough weapons to overthrow the country, and then having a guy in charge of your intelligence service who, again should probably be anti-communist, given that that's the job. There's not a lot of oversight, and there's a lot of opportunity for bad acting, is is what basically Gladio comes down to. Uh, speaking of, of bad acting, <laughs> uh, if you are a vampire, and you are looking for a bunch of highly capable Renfields, your glowing red eyes might uh, cast toward uh, one of these groups. This might be in the backstory of a Knight's Black Agent story, or... You know, if they're getting a little old, you can just give them a little vampire blood. You can rejuvenate mm -hmm. them and they can be active in the present day. They may need new cover identities to explain why they look a lot like their dads and their uncles uh, who were involved in Gladio or Absalon or uh, whatever it was. So this would be a, a cool thing to introduce into Knight's Black Agents. Uh, on the other side of that, you could posit that the the real purpose of the Leave Behind Networks was to disguise the other, the real Leave Behind Network, which was to deal with vampires. So that could be, you know, they could be vampire hunters who just occasionally, because of their other political proclivities, go and get into firefights with uh, their communist uh, counterparts. And, uh, of course, in Fall of Delta Green, uh, this you're closer to the actual time period where this is going on, and these could all really be majestic fronts or Delta Green counters to other majestic fronts and uh, could be a whole uh, rabbit hole because a big problem we've talked about earlier with Delta Green is it's, you don't want to give every intelligence agency a Delta Green, but you want to have operatives on the ground in different places in Europe. Well, the front operation for that is uh, one of these Operation Gladio type organizations. Yeah, that they're, you know, that within Sheepskin, let's say there are a couple of uh, Delta Green friendlies uh, who have got a special number to call it the ONI if they see something weird happening on that one island in the Aegean that we don't talk about. And you tell them, well, that's a communist island, and maybe the Soviets are going to try and sneak uh, frogmen onto it. So if you see anything that might be Soviets or frogmen, and I cannot emphasize frogmen too strongly, give us a jingle. 
And so <laughs> when the Delta Green guys show up, they're the only ones that know what is actually going on in this, you know, sunken temple to Poseidon. And the, the local Greeks just think that they're helping out against the communists. And so you can feed them in as uh, cannon fodder against the deep ones until you figure out how to uh, stop the infestation otherwise. So it, it, it gives you, as you say, local assets. It gives you connections, cover, et cetera, and plausible bureaucratic deniability in Washington for why you're running a secret operation in Greece when, in fact, Greece is a NATO partner. And what are you even thinking about? And that, I think, is uh, lets you do a lot of things from the I don't know if I like our allies part of the mythos uh, investigation that goes back at least to David Drake's Curse the Darkness. Or you can just do it as a straightforward, you know, story of skullduggery where these guys can't pop their head up because right now Greece is not under the kernels. It's under, you know, a, a, a democratic government that does not approve of sheepskin. And that's why they weren't told about it. And so you have to carry everything out on the, on, on you know, on the DL to prevent, um, you know, sheepskin from being blown and therefore your cover as Delta Green from being blown. Right. And uh, once you start looking at the uh, supernatural implications, you know, sheepskin could be the golden fleece, right? They could be the guardians of uh, that uh, artifact. The name of Absalon, I think, has some mythic resonance that you might want to uh, dig into some more. And also, you know, there's nothing more sinister than the acronym TD hyphen BDJ. That's got to be some sort of acronym for some sort of weird demonic or unpronounceable Chthonian language. Yeah, you can you can certainly, you know, say that it's it's got two meanings and that the cover meaning, just like majestic and magic, have the, the two covers, that there's a, a cover TDBGJ inside that is also, you know, you know, tourist delta something something. Lots of possibilities. Or that Gladio refers to, you know, it's it's named for the short sword, but it also may, you know, carry some other significance that uh, it's about a specific short sword. Maybe Excalibur has been recovered and is being hidden in Italy or uh, the, the sword that Caesar carried, you know, some sort of mythical mythos killing thing is the Gladio and that you've got the whole operation there yeah. just to make sure that it stays safe in case um, Volturnus rises from, you know, Mount uh, Vesuvius or whatever. Right. And since we're talking espionage and betrayal, I bet that short sword is the one that stabbed Caesar. Yeah, it may have been. <laughs> rather than the one that he was may carrying. Have been both. And uh, if it's got the blood of Caesar on it, there's your whole campaign uh, right there. And and our rule is once we give you a whole campaign, it's time for us to hit the road, but we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. And close this podcast in the dome of your largesse by joining such backers as... Chris McCarthy. Chuck Cooley. Dan O'Hanlon. Daniel Gill. And Eric Jepson. Where this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Ingest the eldritch cappuccino foam with our latest design. If it's coffee, I'll drink it. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>